41 years old and to have written these books and gone on to become one of the most well-known names in all of fiction and but to have no concept that that was going to be the case for her while she was alive so it's sad and interesting story it really does strike me as something you would read it sounds like something you would read in a story right like it's it's so tragic in in a way that feels like it was engineered to be so to be so prolific and then to die so young and to have this lasting legacy beyond basically anyone else if it just feels like a myth at this point Friends, to episode 193 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Jane Austen's 1815 novel, Pride and Prejudice. All right, forgive me, I must inquire whether reading this beloved classic elicited an intense felicity within you, James, or rather, sentiments more disagreeable and unbecoming of a man of your enviable station. Indubitably, my good sir. <laughs> um, you didn't answer the question. <laughs> yeah, no, right. <laughs> the language of this novel was a bit overwhelming. <laughs> it yeah. was uh, it was it was quite a throwback to right. a very particular time and a very particular place. I feel like I've clicked a switch in my brain at some point. It started to feel less like something dated and and maybe more something that was to be admired i don't know it, it definitely took me to a certain place you know what i mean yeah. this novel like it added to the authenticity of like the the status and the classness of this whole of the whole vibe of the story mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's uh it's a really interesting important novel i didn't know hardly anything about it um and i you know doing research into jane austen was very cool very interesting person um, putting it in historical context, I think, really helped me. Um, and then there's the issue of reading a book that was written in 1815 today and, and you know, where literature has gone in modern times um, versus 200 years, over 200 years ago, and how there's a lot of me that was struggling with just the different conventions and the the difference in language and, and uh, you know, the all the things that we do these days when it comes to plotting and pacing and everything else. Um, not to say that this book does none of it because I actually was impressed with how well it holds up in some ways. Um, just in other ways, uh, I did find myself struggling a little bit. Yeah. With the way that we cover a lot of things on the podcast and maybe specifically this time, I didn't give myself quite as much time as I would have liked, but I felt like I was really trying to race through it in some, yeah. at certain points. And I think uh, I felt like I knew making that decision to to read through it quickly i was sort of like passing by some of like the more poetic parts of the story and like each sentence feels like something that could be you know it's poetic in a sense and then it's also like metaphorical or like there's a lot more to to it than just the substance of what what's being said the plot yeah there's a lot of depth um i i have several pull quotes that i i was struck by that i pulled out that i want to read um there is a lot of depth in this story and i think it is is held up as you know an important piece of work and and honestly the english language and and, and all of literature um it, and some of other uh, jane austen's other novels as well um but i think this is her most well-known one and yeah i mean it, it's it's kind of a mixed bag for me um you know i like to read every kind of thing at least in some way and for me certain kinds of romance um, stuff will end up, I'll end up reading it more as almost an academic exercise. I like a romance plot, but I tend to like it more within a different kind of story. Like there, there might be a romance plot within a fantasy story or within sci-fi or something else. Um, when that is the primary driver, which I guess is for this novel, although you could also argue it is, it is more of a period piece about, although 
it wasn't a period piece for Jane Austen when she was writing it because she this was what she lived in. But looking at it now, it's like learning about a time and a place and the particular customs and weird sort of eccentricities of that class and that um, society. That is a big appeal to this novel, I think. And, and so that is something to look at there. But otherwise, I would say this is ultimately a, a, a well-written romance about two characters who eventually find a heavily, happily ever after, right? And um, those kind of stories I tend to read as more of an academic interest to me because it's not the kind of genre that I, I pick up on my own. But it's not to say I can't find any way to enjoy it. And So I, I'm kind of mixed on this book, I guess. Coming to the coming to this story last week, we we ended our last episode announcing this project, and we were talking about how like I was excited to embrace the story and and yeah. to like throw myself into a romance novel in a way I hadn't had a chance to necessarily in a long time, and like maybe see it with fresh eyes. And you know, I walk away kind of having some of my my preconceived notions confirmed, where I'm like, okay, like this isn't necessarily the kind of thing that I'm going to be continuing to reach for in the future. I don't have like a new a new love that I'm that I'm like going to want to run out and, and read a ton more. But I did I did really enjoy it for what it was. And part of the story, part of the thing that I liked about the story was that it felt like you're saying less less like what I was expecting to be a pure romance specifically about like how uh, eternal their love is and how it's all perfect. And, and it was more yeah. of a story about like the the political landscape of a certain time period and like the way that you know, women were treated in the, in the society in the way that men, the patriarchy was, was propped up and like how uh, this, the, our main character, Elizabeth, like navigates that and finds ways to have agency and like a lot of that, yeah. even within a story where ultimately at the end, there's like this happy ending where she ends up, you know, with a guy and it's like in that yeah. way, ro a romance novel. But well, and, and it is, um, I think you're speaking to a larger uh way than which the the love story is situated it's situated in a, as a story about multiple families and their reputations and the way that these marriages affects all these different people there's like a web uh in that society and and um it's it's operating in a sense against the pressures especially like older pressures it seems like old guard versus um you know, like wanting to be in love with somebody, you know, and like whether or not that's something that's okay and and how you navigate that. And then also like the considerations outside of just your own happiness, but like what it's going to say about your family and your property and your status and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. Did you ever, uh, by chance, did you ever catch any of uh, Downton Abbey? I have not seen any Downton Abbey. No. Like, honestly, this is a genre I don't know a ton about. Like, I know Bridgerton came out recently, and it was, like, a really fun modern take on this kind of romance, mm -hmm. but with, like, no regards to historical accuracy, just, like, going for a broke on, on raunchiness is my understanding. I haven't seen it, but, um, and I know that's based off a book, but... I've heard people um, love that show, and I know it dudes super well on Netflix. That book is sort of reacting to something like this, maybe not this right. particular novel, but like novels in the, uh, that were set in this time period. And I, I do think that having read this, I would appreciate something that's reacting to it more later. And, and then yeah. I was also I was talking to a friend of the podcast, Remy, uh, Remy Nakamura, and he was talking about some authors he knows who um, who write like Regency magic stories. And like that's another thing to to like know what what genres people are touching on and what they're what they're referencing i think this is a good touchstone pillar of the genre um to look at so that i can be aware of the landscape which i, I think is useful yeah and i even mentioned at the end of last episode how i felt like this was an embarrassing blind spot like i think that this is like first to be you know culturally aware we needed to have experienced the story in a way that we have and you know so many things like that i that i would like uh, i've always been intrigued by the title Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and wondered yeah. like what go, that yeah. would be like. And like, I don't know if that, if that, you know, story holds up at all the, with the, with the added zombies. And I, I've always, but now I have the basis to go into it and really engage with it in a way that I wouldn't, couldn't have before. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and like a lot, a lot of reading this reminded me of just like the family Mac, like, like people vying for power, the way that like, the way that ultimately like families want you to do a certain thing in these cultures. It run, reminded me a lot of like my experience with what I did see of uh, Downton Abbey. Okay. Yeah, I think you're probably right on there. I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Um, one thing I did come away enjoying in this book and, and um, I don't know, I, I guess I should have been expecting it, but I wasn't 
uh, was there was a, a an impressive amount of wit and sarcasm and banter and um, that the dialogue was well written. Like the way the characters are interacted with each other. Uh, Elizabeth in particular, I found really engaging uh, the Mr. Bennett. Uh, he seemed to have like a very similar him and him and Elizabeth had a very similar uh, sense of humor and seemed to get along for that reason. And I liked a lot of his jabs. He would take at his wife, who's a little bit ridiculous. Um, so I, I throughout, I thought that the the dialogue was always interesting um, and, and and kept me pretty well engaged. Well, and I was uh, surprised at just how much of it because coming from a like a background in more fantasy and like medieval this isn't medieval or anything by any stretch but like the, this idea of an old english story mm -hmm. uh for some reason i'm accustomed to like a lot of like descriptions of landscapes and and like it, it kind of felt like there was a little bit of that but much more like dialogue driven um not a lot of like descriptions of characters or places they are we just get names of places and then you know the actual actions that take place along the way and there is a there is a narrator that that like lends like a nice sort of extra layer to to the story yeah there's it's a third person narration um but it does include a bunch of these like epistolary sections with different letters being written between from different characters which i think is pretty neat and and, and in my research i found that that is something that jane austen did quite a bit and in fact her previous novel was originally written as a series of letters um, that then she revised, um, and, and to make into uh, Sense and Sensibility was the, that, that novel. Um, she later heard revised it to be, too. um, what's it you do know or don't know? No, no, no. I've heard a lot. I've just heard the name. So that's another blind spot that like, I'm, I'm excited cause I don't know a ton about Jane Austen, but I've heard the name plenty. So I'll be interested to hear what you found. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I have a lot of cool stuff to get into with her bio. Um, but yeah, where I was going with that, yeah, I was impressed with the, with the sort of structure and POV, uh, of this book. Um, yeah, I, I liked all of that. Um, I do want to give a shout out to the audio book. That was how I experienced this novel. And, um, it is narrated by Rosamund Pike, who we've talked about on Gone Girl and is going to be in the new upcoming Wheel of Time, uh, adaptation. And I believe she is in either the movie we're going to cover or a different version of this movie. <laughs> I'm wow. not really, or of this cool. book. I'm not really sure. She's in one of them. I, I, I don't know who she plays or anything, but we can keep an eye out and say, maybe she's in the one we're going to cover uh, the 2005 one. We'll keep an eye out, but it was very cool. She did a great job. And honestly, I think really helped bring alive some of the dialogue in a way that like a, you know, an, uh, you know, bona fide movie star can do and really like bring the emotion and bring the nuance to the, to these lines and, and, and really sell them. And it's almost like scenes. So I really like that. And um, it was included with my audible subscription. I didn't have to buy it with like a, a credit. So if you have audible, honestly, like check it out if you're interested. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And, and as much as I said that I feel like I had to blow through it, it, it was a fairly short read. So, so it's not, it's, I don't think it's that intimidating of a read if you're looking to like check out some literary stuff, which is kind of how I feel all the time. If, if, if not for the podcast, I feel like I would be trying to flesh out some of my knowledge on more literary stuff. Cause I, I don't have a huge background in it. Yeah. It's interesting because it's important, I think, to figure like to place this novel where where it is, because I was reading some reviews of it, people reading it today. And it's like, how do how do you rate a book? Like, how do you how do you decide how you feel about a book? Because it's almost unfair to try and compare this novel to anything you've read that's been written in the last 50 years. Right. Like it's the not the novel as an art form was young when she was writing this it had only really started becoming a thing in in the english-speaking world um since the 1600s and slowly over time was starting to build up and um she was reacting in the se early 1700s i was reading is like kind of the, the rise of the novel as as an art form and she's writing this in like the late 1700s early 1800s um so i mean it was it was pretty new and um i think it's it's an art form that isn't doesn't have a limitation of technology so it's kind of apples and oranges to compare it to like movies but there is a little bit of something you could say for like what would it be like to compare the latest christopher nolan flick or whatever to you know a, a, a movie that was made in 1910 you know or whatever like it's it's kind of not fair to compare the two 
I mean, like, there's there's things that are that are timeless, like composition. When you look at film, is timeless. Like, you're not you're always going to be able to look at a frame and and know whether it was composed well. Things like that. Um, Of course, you're gonna have limitations, but it does it does remind me of reacting to older films in the way that I may I am I do feel like I'm able to put myself in the shoes of something that's like if it is influential in those ways. I feel like I can I can view it at that time and then also like retroactively you know, show re- it reinforcing all of these other things along the way that I've seen. Well, hugely influential this novel is, right? Like it, so many people who came after and uh, I was just, you know, I, we'll get into the history behind it. It was written about a thing she experienced firsthand. Like it was, this was basically her, li- well, her life was, she lived in these kind of circles, not necessarily the plot of what happened, but like this is the kind of life she lived, the kind of people she was around. And she's writing about it and the reason I think you're talking about how they would just name things is it to me is written in a way that it was like assuming you knew what she's talking about, like assuming you know where these places are and what they look like. Like it was kind of written for this society, like for people who live in this world to read in some sense, or maybe like it, it, maybe you don't necessarily live in that world, but like you are aware of it. You're you're like close to it, right? I don't think she had any. I mean, I know she didn't have any uh, expectation that this was going to be like a world phenomenon, worldwide phenomenon that people would be talking about on a podcast two hundred years from later. You know, yeah. like it's yeah. it's it's probably would be intensely mind blowing to know that um, for for multiple reasons, obviously. Of course, I knew that it was an older novel. I didn't know that it was. I didn't know exactly the date. I didn't look it up when I was when I was reading it. But to know that she was going through similar situation is it does feel like it's a risk, right? Because she's kind of pushing back against things that were the norm for the time. It feels like, what was the reaction of it early on? You know, I'd love to know, like, did people push a, yeah. push back against it right away or did they embrace it fully? Like, was it sort of a rallying cry for women at the time? Let me just back up a second and say that I like that you are picking up on that sort of subtle criticism and sort of satire being leveled at these characters. Like, it is... Um, I also, I picked up on the same thing. It felt like some of these characters were being shown to be kind of buffoons or, or yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're of certain birth and certain standing, but they're actually not people that you like or not people that you should respect. Um, and, and I think that was a bit of a controversial thing to do. Um, and there's a real attention to like realism and like in, in these, in these circles. And, um, there was that, that comedic kind of satirical, undertones are there um but it is all also very subtle and i was reading that um one of the things that has made austin so interesting for people to to study and there there are people in academics who like devote their you know all of their research into talking about jane austen and which by the way is kind of scary because i know someone's like there are going to be many people who listen to this who know a lot more about jane austen than i do um and i'll probably screw some shit up um but uh, you know, I'm doing my best over here. <laughs> uh, but what I'm trying to say is, like, you can read Austin and uh, this novel in many different ways. And, and, like, people have read it as sort of bolstering, like, Toryism and the aristocracy and sort of a um, a confirming of conservative England and, like, this society. And, like, people, you can read it that way, but then lots of other people have read it as early feminist um a story about about a woman who's sort of trapped and tr- struggling to find her own way and her own ability to speak for herself and and like value things like love and and things like that so like and it's all subtle enough and it's all sort of um implied in, in ways that people have found ways to back it up with different readings of the text and can say like, oh, you're you're reading this wrong. It's actually this, or you're, no, you're reading it wrong. It's actually this, and yeah. that makes for like really interesting literature and a really interesting discourse over the years. And of course, that has changed over time. And uh, we'll get into some of that where I'll answer some more of your questions. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think you're you're definitely asking you're asking the right questions. <laughs> my my reading was definitely more the latter. Yeah, mine too. But that's that's our that's our own bias, though. You know what right. I mean? Like that's yeah. people bring their own biases. More liberal thinking. Kind of thing. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're thinking. So two things. I I felt like having the main character be someone who very clearly was going against the status quo in many ways was that flag for me. Like that's what it was. It was flagging for me. It was just that like uh, we can sympathize with this character. Uh, and the the biggest thing, my second point that I was going to make is the relatability of this story 
carrying on through the generations and still being relevant today as of why I think this this novel is so notable and why people still talk about it. It's because like the status, the, the class status things that are going on, you know, maybe not to quite the degree, but everyone can relate to being in a situation where they felt like someone was looking down on them because of their class or, you know, the and, and obviously the title comes up at that point, the pride and the prejudice and how people will judge a book by its cover early on. And, and uh, those are some things that were just firing for me. Yeah, you know, and I like that, and and I agree because even though this ostensibly is a story about a very particular time and and status that most people don't have, <laughs> right. um, a lot of people have experienced um, having to having to consider their family when it comes to someone that they are going to end up marrying, and mm-hmm. consider you know just outside influences and reputations and how that can that can kind of modify things i I think in america we really value the idea of like love as as something that transcends everything else and like nothing else you know how much money people you have how much you know your family likes somebody any of that stuff like we we like to sort of believe that that shouldn't matter but that isn't Mm -hmm. necessarily the case everywhere else in the world and in fact for the majority of history that wasn't the case and yeah. Um. Even in, you know many places in America, that's not the case. So, I I, I did find like my own personal romantic sensibilities sometimes didn't line up with the, with like having to care about all this other shit. Yeah. But it is interesting to read about people who do care about it. Right? right. Well, have you ever been in a situation where like you like someone and someone else like someone, and then the other person was maybe had more money than you, or was you know had did X, Y, or Z in their life that gave them a higher status, whether it was a high school thing or whatever, and they were they were using that actively against you and and showing that you were inferior in that way. Like that's the kind of stuff that I felt like I was picking up on. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, one of the other things because I was I was trying to figure out like why has this novel endured for so long and 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 it's something that people still to this day love and i should also say not just the novel like the adaptations uh many of them are beloved and um we're gonna watch one of the most beloved ones um is my understanding so we'll get a taste of that but i think there's a little bit of of kind of like a cinderella type element to this story definitely not in the sense of rags to riches but that that um archetype that you see in so much romance of Someone, you know, winding up with not only a true love, but someone who is wealthy and a landowner and has a library in their house and servants and is going to give you this sort of storybook life where you're going to live on an, in the English countryside in a manner. Which doesn't really line up with with like the character that we're that we get throughout the rest of the novel. But I feel like I have some points that I can point to that still show that it's like the character's consistent if that makes You're t- sense. which character you're talking about elizabeth, elizabeth or? like okay. elizabeth like, in the way that like you know it's i don't think i can spoil a almost 200 year no, old no, yeah, don't worry novel about it. <laughs> point, but like the re- she rejects him initially yeah and then eventually like they come to find out that they like each other and then and then eventually they end up together and she sort of like even though she's pushed back against all of these things that are the, the social norms of the time she still ends up in that cookie cutter sort of within the patriarchy under like with a guy who has all this money and wealth and status and like everything's great and but like this character seemed like she was pushing back against all these gender norms and all of that other stuff but then ultimately ends up in the in the place where we kind of which maybe maybe that's why some people read it that way um I, i i do think that there's a bit of just that like she she is choosing it and I think so she's too. she's yeah. happy. She's with someone she's, you know, genuinely in love with. And it happens to be a marriage that also winds up pleasing her family, improving their status in some ways, um, solving some of the problems they've been having. Sure, there are a few people it rubs the wrong way, but like she 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 is happily ever after within her society. She's not like burning it down or anything like you exactly, know, can, yeah. but but like I don't know. I think there is sort of a wish fulfillment thing there of like, you know, maybe societal issues aside, like it's it's a fun thing to think about. Like we we should all love to to spend a week as a, you know, aristocrat in 1800s England, which I'm sure isn't as fun as it sounds, you know, without modern medicine and everything. But like, you know what I mean? Like it's very romantic and these these giant houses and the horses and the, you know, the beautiful countryside and 
it's just it's 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 a really a, a period and a, and a and a lifestyle that people you know ha- feel a lot of affection for and and i think part of the appeal of this novel is like living in that in their shoes of these characters for the time in which you're reading the book it transports you to this era and to this lifestyle and i think that that's something people look for we got to stop for a moment though and talk about jane austen the person uh, and then we'll we'll get into the plot and 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 so forth um so i read a ton about her there's a lot known a lot that's not known she was born in 1775, died in 1817 at the age of 41. Um, she is primarily known for six major novels, which interpret, critique, and comment upon the British landed gentry at the end of the 18th century. Austen's plots often explore the dependence of women on marriage and the pursuit of favorable social standing and economic security. So... Um, yeah, she wrote Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, uh, Northanger, Abbey, and Persuasion, which were both published posthumously in 1818. So six major novels, um, a memoir was written about her, um, after she died that, that is very notable for sort of making her popular because she's one of those authors who was not famous and well-read in, in her, during her life. Um, she published these novels anonymously, did not have her name attached to them. They were not widely read. Um, mostly, I, I was seeing that like critics thought they were fine, but they were not considered anything particularly notable. Um, she, was sell- she sold the rights for them for like 10 pounds, British, which like wow. in, in the 1800s, I'm sure, was more than it, more than it is today, but not right, that much. But- how does it so how does it eventually get linked back to her so she uh starts writing these novels she she reads all the time she's very intelligent and she starts writing these books and she's amusing her family and friends by reading them as she's as she's writing them she was just like read chapters to them and they'd sit around the parlor probably while she reads them right <laughs> and they're like oh yes it's very good you know and that was kind of her like demonstration that she was an intelligent woman, you know what I mean? Um, but at this time and in this particular society and the, you know, a woman of her status or whatever, like it wasn't considered okay for her to be a novelist. And in fact, if you were to try and be a novelist, it, it was considered like uh vain or like, like you're, you're like chasing fame and you're, you're this lioness who's like trying to, you know, make a name for herself as opposed to like being a good wife. Right. So it wasn't an okay thing for her to really do. Um, Her father liked her novels and it's unclear whether or not she knew that he did this, but he was what tried to get them published um, early on. I think one of them was rejected. It's unclear, at least in what I was seeing, um, how involved she was with the early attempts to get it published. But I know later on she was more involved but again, she had to publish it anonymously because she didn't. She couldn't have her name attached to it because it would be considered something that would lower her her in the eyes of the people she knew and in the, the circles she was running in. And, it, and that's a shame. But um, it, it's fascinating for me to think about her writing these novels that have gone on to become landmark pieces of work. Right? Her novels actually got translated into French. And started getting published and cheaply produced with like pirated editions. And so she didn't even know that her novels were actually making, making their ways into different places and being read. Um, She wasn't getting a dime for any of that. And this is around that. We talked about this with uh, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Copyright law was (laughs) was not really a thing. And this was something that ended up having to be invented um, to to combat some of these things that were going on for authors where their work would just get pirated and, and republished somewhere else and they wouldn't see a dime. Um, and, and that happened with a lot of Austin's work. Um, but eventually, after she died, her sister, I believe, Cassandra, Henry Austin, and Murray arranged for the publication of Persuasion and Northanger Abbey as a set. Those were the books that were published posthumously. Um, Henry Austin contributed a biographical note uh, for which the first time identified his sister as the author of the novels. So she, for the first time, was identified as the author of these novels after she was already dead. Wow. Her novels were out of print in the 1820s, 
although they were still being read as copies that were housed in private libraries and circulating uh, in circulation, um, sort of hand-to-hand stuff. In 1832, Richard Bentley purchased the remaining copyrights to all her novels, and over the following winter published five illustrated volumes as part of his standard novel series. In 1833, Bentley released the first collected edition of her works, and since then, Austen's novels have been continuously in print, so 1833. So I was reading that the publication of James Edward Austen's, sorry, Austen Lee's, I'm not sure what the relation is. I think this is like a, a, a oh, it's a nephew. Yes, because it's about his aunt. Yeah. So he writes this this book called A Memoir of Jane Austen in 1869. And uh, this kind of introduces her to the wider public, where he talks about his aunt's life and her sort of anonymously writing these books and the story of her doing this. Um, and the, the memoir goes on to sell well. And then all of a sudden people all across the country and around the world start becoming interested in this author. And she became so popular in the 18, 1880s and around the start of the 20th century, there's a click of people who started to call themselves the Janeites. Uh, because they were so into the, her writing, um, and they get so into it that they become hipsters about it, and they get upset when she starts becoming hugely popular, and they're <laughs> like, "All these new popular, like all these new people, don't know that we've been here since the beginning, liking Jane Austen," and so they like rebel against this like wide popularization of her. It's <laughs> wow. like so if you think about like what we see all the time in pop culture today, like that happened early on with Austen at like the end of the 1800s. I can't believe it's so fascinating to me that, and of course, like there's plenty of artists through time that create the art just for themselves, but it, with with seemingly no avenue for publication to just be continuing to write because it's your passion in that way, and you know sometimes show it to your family, and then for it to be so well written and so meticulous and so you know influential for such a long time, uh, and to have it just be. I don't know to to never see any of that any of that impact and I don't know it's just it's haunting that it bothers me you know that Jane Austen never got to see any of her success and there's so many artists like that but but to be so influential and to be still talked about in in literary circles and to be seen as one of these like you know one of the great authors of of the, like the last 200 years or whatever maybe the one of the greatest novelists ever no i mean it's it's tragic and you're you're right on she is one of the greatest novelists of all time i think you know i think that's that's safe to say she's been listed among them um people different you know places have tried to come up with them and she's been compared to you know people like shakespeare and of course she also has detractors like henry james um decried what he called a beguiled infatuation with austin in what he saw as a rising tide of public interest that exceeded austin's quote intrinsic merit and interest um, so there, there's people who were anti Janite, uh, Janites is what I'm seeing here, um, which included people like Mark Twain, Charlotte Bronte, D.H. Lawrence, Kingsley Amos. Um, these people were all anti, they were anti. So this, cause she was so in vogue to, for people to love. Um, so then you had all these, uh, famous authors coming out against her. And it, it's, it's so fascinating that all this is taking place long after she's dead. Right. So. It's, it's really weird. I don't know to think about that, but, but, you know, and, and people have looked back at these and said that it, it, it tended to be more of, um, artistic disagreements and like, this is what I want to do artistically. This is what I think a novel should be. This is the kind of book I want to write. And a lot of these authors were trying to differentiate themselves from the kind of writing that, that Jane Austen was doing and say that I'm going to do something different. Um, and it seems to be more about that than anything else, right? Like, well, I, we I'm, tend to see that even today, just people being a reaction to other things, like George R. R. Martin being a reaction to someone like Tolkien. Not that he, not that he hates his writing or wants to tear him down, but it's more of like he wants to be so different that he doesn't want to be compared in some ways. And I think that's probably what we're seeing with other authors, like having to try to sell up against someone like a Jane Austen, and and like to say like we can't compete in some ways and and to say like look mine is more mine well, is more interesting and, and you are you are touching on it like they were alive and trying to sell whereas austin was dead and probably yeah. selling really well and they were probably like 
hey, stop buying her stuff and come buy ours. Yeah, I mean, maybe that might have been part of it. Um, so the book itself, Pride and Prejudice, is sort of a satire or critique of what were known as sentimental novels or novels of sensibility um, that were a little bit predating this novel. They came, they were in the 1700s when she was writing this. Um, and this was a literary genre I didn't know much about. I read about it here. Um, it was a genre that celebrates the emotional and intellectual concepts of sentiment, sentimentalism, and sensibility. Um, and it, it was in faction in both poetry and prose at the beginning of the 18th century um, in, our, in a reaction to the rationalism of the Augustan age. So we're getting into like real historical stuff here about the history of novels and the history of fiction. Um, but I think it's interesting that like, this was a reaction to something that came before it too. Like we see so often. Right. And it was a reaction from within a, that society though. You know what I mean? She wasn't critiquing it from the outside. She was critiquing it from within. And I think you can read a lot into, you know, these women who are struggling in this world and see a lot of what, I think I assume Jane Austen was going through. Uh, one thing I did read was that she had a love. Um, a lot of people. Okay. So first off, not a lot is known about Jane Austen because she died before she was famous. Right. So everything people know about her was through her surviving family members who would later like share details. And they read a bunch of her letters. She wrote like thousands and thousands of letters, mm -hmm. but her sister also admitted to having burned thousands of letters of hers. Why? And the the what people believe, and I don't know if this was confirmed or not, but um, she apparently would write sort of scathing um, descriptions of people they knew and like talk, mm. you know, talk bad about them and stuff. And yeah. her sister didn't want the people that they knew to find out about it. So she burned them all to like, rather than face the embarrassment of like, oh, she one time she talked bad about so and so. And now people know that, um, which is sad because now all of that is lost to time. Right. Like we'll never know. And but it does go to show that she had that like insightful, biting um, personality and, and clearly was very clever and very funny and, you know, was 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 writing about people all the time, apparently that she knew. <laughs> That's funny. So such a like pre caught in the present thing to do to burn something like that after yeah. someone's death. Well, she has no idea like, that there, what right. Jane Austen's going to go on to be. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I did read that she apparently had someone that people think now looking back at her letters, there was a man that she fell in love with who was not, it looks like he was trying to become a barrister, um, which is like a, like a lawyer. And he wasn't, he didn't have enough money and enough like status to be a worthy pairing for her and and within her sort of circles. So mm -hmm. she ended up not being able to pursue a relationship with him, but it, there was evidence of her like continuing to think about him and, and letters written years and years later. Um, so it seems like maybe she did have one sort of great love that ended up not, not being able to be, she didn't get to have her, her fairy tale romance. You know what I mean? Um, because this guy was not of the status that he needed to be for it to be okay. Um, and so I think that tension being in her, a lot of her books, the tension between, you know, making your family happy and, and fitting the roles that society has for you, but on then also wanting to have love. Um, obviously this is something she had to deal with in her own life. Um, and her own family also was going through issues with like their fortunes and their property. And so a lot of that would make it into the books. So, yeah. Um, again, I don't know all the specifics. I read a ton of information and I'm sure people know way more about this. So I'm sorry if I'm getting things wrong, do feel free, um, you know, educate us. I'll, if I, if I see some really interesting stuff, I'll, I'll talk about it next time on the pod. If I, if I get a moment to next time, but, um, yeah. at the very least I'd be curious to know. So if I got any of this wrong, please feel free to let me know. So do we know, I mean, obviously it was such a long time ago, but like dying in your forties, like, was it just p why, part of the right? time? Was it something, do you know why she died so young? She started getting ill in 1816. A lot of it now is people looking back and trying to sort of diagnose it retrospectively. But I think it was kind of an unknown illness. Um, but retrospectively um biographers uh, you know in it looks like in the mid 19 like 1960s or whatever um are still trying to figure out what what it was 
and the current thinking is that she had Addison's disease, um, although her final illness has also been described as resulting from Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, wow. So I don't know how those two things play in together. I'm not a doctor, but that's that's what I'm seeing here. Um, just kind of a mysterious illness. People not really sure why or what, but um, she would often sort of make, like talk about this in sort of light, hearted ways and and letters she would write she was saying that she was turning every wrong color she was spending her life chiefly on the sofa um she would often refer to her condition as bile and rheumatism um apparently you know it's kind of cracking jokes about it but she as the illness progressed she started to experience difficulty walking lacking energy uh became confined to her bed and yeah, unfortunately suffered a lot of pain. And um, by the end, uh, they said that she was welcoming death because of how much pain she was in. So, Jeez. Very, yeah, very unfortunate. That's rough. And again, 41 years old. And to have yeah. written these books and gone on to become one of the most well-known names in all of fiction, and but to have no concept that that was going to be the case for her while she was alive. So, yeah. It's a sad and interesting story. It really does strike me as something you would read. It sounds like something you would read in a story, right? Like it's it's so tragic in in a way that feels like it was engineered to be so, to be so prolific and then to die so young and to have this lasting legacy beyond basically anyone else. Uh, if It just feels like a myth at this point. Yeah, well, we got to move into plot here. Um, so I've got three paragraphs of plot. I'll read each one and we can react to them real quick and talk about this book. Okay, let's do it. All right, so Pride and Prejudice is set in rural England in the early 19th century, and it follows the Bennett family, which includes five very different sisters. Mrs. Bennett is anxious to see all her daughters married, especially as the modest family estate is to be inherited by William Collins when Mr. Bennett dies. At a ball, the wealthy and newly arrived Charles Bingley takes an immediate interest in the eldest Bennett daughter, the beautiful and shy Jane. The encounter between his friend Darcy and Elizabeth is less cordial. Although Austen shows them intrigued by each other, she reverses the convention of first impressions, pride of rank and fortune and prejudice against the social inferiority of Elizabeth's family hold Darcy aloof, while Elizabeth is equally uh, fired both by pride of self-respect and by prejudice against Darcy's snobbery. Okay, so this summary is clearly defining pride and prejudice <laughs> for us in this book. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I did read that there's like some discussion about whether or not this, it may have just been chosen as a marketing title because her previous book was called Sense and Sensibility. And so they're like, well, our next book, let's call it Pride and Prejudice. And we can kind of keep this little naming convention going anyway. Um, but people have taken it to be like a big thematic thing to talk about. And um, I do think it's valid to look at that. I did. I, oh, I also saw uh, it was originally called First Impressions was the name of this novel. That makes sense. Which yeah, makes, which makes some be. sense too. So. I, I love, speaking of first impressions, I love the juxtaposition of Elizabeth and Darcy and Jane and Bingley and the way that like Bingley and Jane right away have this relationship where like they hit it off. It's smooth sailing. There's like, it's pretty clear that they're like love at first sight and they're like the traditional sense of like everything that you would see in a romantic story like this. And Elizabeth and and Darcy right away basically hate each other. Yep. Uh, he's like talking. He calls her like plain looking or something, and he's talking yeah. shit about her status. And so she's, she's like to sh- not handsome enough to to like attract his interest or something. Yeah. She like overhears and, him say that. And, and so like all of these things are showing that clearly these people are not meant for each other, but the juxtaposition of the the usual. Uh, romantic first encounter and the way that like everything's pretty good from there and also it it, it creates sort of an enviable situation for her where she's looking at her at her sister and going like why can't i have that um but yeah i mean we do see here early indications that elizabeth is not going to allow herself to be you know like taken in by somebody who's a jerk and uh, you know darcy's a jerk early on he's you know he's he's aloof he's like he's better than this whole situation there's nobody here who's like of the standing that he wants i guess and at least that's how he comes off right and he doesn't want to dance with anybody he's just kind of a jerk to everybody (laughs) and elizabeth doesn't like him and that's the first impressions right like the first impressions are not good here right exactly 
I, I have one here, uh, one quote here I'll read. Um, first off, uh, I guess I should say this book has a very famous beginning, which I know is something mm-hmm. we talk about a lot on the pod. So I'll go ahead and say, here's the beginning of this novel. Wait, is are you going to call it one of Luke's, Luke's, Luke's banging, banging beginnings? beginnings. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very notable beginning. I, I do think it's a good one. Um, I don't know if it qualifies as, as one of my favorites, but it's cool. <laughs> so let's talk yeah. about it. The quote is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So that is a famous line when it opened, when the book opened that way, I was like, oh, I've heard this line before, Um, you know, and it it does set up this book, right? Like it is, it is tonally sort of lighthearted, but also trying to say something universal. Um, It is written in sort of a... Uh, a certain fashion that the whole book is written in, right? So it, it's a it's a good opening line in the sense that it sets you up for what kind of book you're going to read. You know, it says it's kind of a universal thing, but at the end of the day, th- that's this society at right. this present moment more right. than anything. That's, that's giving the, you that framework. That's the perception, at least in this society. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I did have a line here about the difference between vanity and pride, which I thought was pretty cool. So... Quote, vanity and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves, vanity to what we would have others think of us. So there's a distinction here between that sort of like inner pride, like that 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 feeling confidence in oneself. And um, that is something to be admired, I think. And where it transitions into vanity is where it becomes a preoccupation in what others will think of us. And that's just a, that's an interesting distinction to make and a, a clever bit of writing. So this is what we were talking about. We're like, there is some really excellent bits of writing in here. And, and honestly, throughout that do lend themselves to, um, you know, talking about and, and sort of dissecting. Yeah. I, you know, I know that you said that the Pride and Prejudice may not have been the first title, but I did find myself thinking about the pride and the prejudice and not just the like, obviously, I think we're supposed to believe that the pride would be Darcy and the prejudice would potentially be Elizabeth. But there's there's pride and prejudice in almost every character that we come up into in the society in the way that there's like they have preconceived notions about almost everyone that they come in, come in contact with. And everyone is holding everything very close to the chest uh, and they want people to think of them. So maybe this, maybe it should be called vanity and prejudice, but uh, <laughs> like the way that they want people to see them because of the, the whole status of it all, the way yeah. that if, you know, if you have more status, you have more power within this world. The courting game is sort of also one of the major, I don't know, plot lines of this book. Like all these different daughters trying to court these different men um and, and 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 not just for themselves but for their on their family's behalf right and then the mother getting involved and then like different mothers and different families like competing with one another and like talking trash about each other to these guys to try and be like oh you shouldn't talk to them you should talk to my daughter who's you know better for whatever reason and um i think getting getting sort of if you can get caught up in that game and the the turnings of it and the like the backstabbing and the 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 sort of wittiness and like all of that i think you're gonna have the most fun with this book Mm -hmm. um as a reader my problem was i just wasn't really that interested in it um and and so like i could recognize that like that was the disconnect is i was like i should really probably care more about this stuff (laughs) but i was struggling to care um and so sometimes when it was like a lot of this kind of like vying it became kind of dry for me and i just i don't know i i struggled to care i agree i mean you know i was able to work through it but and i and i think in ways appreciate it especially when i had finished a chapter there with there were when there was a lot of that (laughs) and i think that that's just showing that like it's not necessarily my preferred but at this, by the same note, I do want to say like it does feel a lot like it's like I don't know. There's a lot of like political shows where it's about like vying for power, 
uh, and it does it, it, like if you even like that, I think you could click into a story like this in ways. But you do have to. I think the biggest thing is you do have to be really invested in the characters who and some of the time you could tell that the characters were kind of just side characters in the story about Elizabeth and Darcy. And it felt like it wasn't quite as interesting to hear if so-and-so ends up with so-and-so and, and why they were able to blackmail so-and-so into doing I that. I suspect a lot of that is going to get streamlined in the adaptations because there yeah. was a lot of time spent on the different daughters and their relationships, um, right. which I'm sure, you know, we won't even be able to get into all the, you know, all the little details. Speaking of, let's, let's read the next paragraph of plot. So the pompous Collins subsequently arrives, hoping to marry one of the Bennett sisters. Elizabeth, however, refuses his offer of marriage, and he instead becomes engaged to her friend Charlotte Lucas. During this time, Elizabeth encounters the charming George Wickham, a military officer. There is a mutual attraction between the two, and he informs her that Darcy has denied him his inheritance. After Bingley abruptly departs for London, Elizabeth's dislike of Darcy increases as she becomes convinced that he is discouraging Bingley's relationship with Jane. Darcy, however, has grown increasingly fond of Elizabeth, admiring her intelligence and vitality. While visiting the now-married Charlotte, Elizabeth sees Darcy, who professes his love for her, and proposes. A surprised Elizabeth refuses his offer, and when Darcy demands an explanation, she accuses him of breaking up Jane and Bingley. Okay, let's stop there. Um, so, the pompous Collins shows up, this guy is that example we were talking about. Like he is, he is someone who's got a lot of money. It would make a lot of sense for Elizabeth to marry him. Um, he, I think he's the guy who's going to inherit their, their home. So it would like keep, keep access to it, I guess. Um, there's a lot of things as far as like status and money goes for, for marrying him, but he's kind of a dick and he doesn't really care. Like he clearly doesn't care about her as evidenced by him proposing to Charlotte, like the next day, like it doesn't matter. He's just looking to get married to somebody kind of thing. And, um, Elizabeth stands up for herself and she ends up refusing this proposal. And, um, I like that Mr. Bennett like has her back, even though her mom you know, says she's made a huge mistake, you know? Yeah. It, again, doesn't really feel like it's, it's, the norm for that time period. You, right. I think that typically the father would, I think everybody in this situation, if I had to guess, would, would have been like, yeah, this is a good move. Uh, and also we have four other daughters. So hopefully we can sort of sp sp like uh, spread our bets out and, and then hit on something that secures the financial like freedom of the, of the family going forward and, and make sure that everything seems like it's going to continue as it as it has been because it seems like the father's done pretty well which which brings up the fact of like why would he have like signed this this specific i don't know i don't know i i couldn't tell you the, law the, the that basically sends of, the, of why property something to do with like a male heir i think it's because they don't he doesn't yeah. have a son maybe that's that must just be a law in this contractually something or i don't know yeah maybe it was a law but uh seems pretty dumb uh yeah. <laughs> So Darcy has this like moment where he's, I, at some point he decides, actually, you know what? I do like Elizabeth. <laughs> she's yeah. smart. She's interesting. She's beautiful. I don't know what I was smoking when I said that she, you know, wasn't very handsome or whatever. Like he realizes the folly of his ways. Um, but of course, now she kind of hates him. And she is also starts talking to this guy who's telling her about how terrible he is about how he's denied the inheritance. I think uh, Wickham, is that the character's name? Um, yeah, Wickham, this this military officer, and who has this former, you know, relationship with the Darcy and, and the Darcy's, and, like, uh, he's telling her lies, we find out later, about why the inheritance didn't get sent. I don't know. I don't know all the details, but I know that it's lies because we find out later that it had to do with... Um, he like tried to to court uh, Darcy's sister, who was like 15 at the time. And then uh, I guess, you know, that is why he ended up being pissed at him because he was like trying to get the money through like underhanded ways. Well, I think he was also a gambler, too, and like had like owed a bunch of money and was in yeah. debt. And that become that comes to play a part at some point. And he's lied about all of this to Elizabeth, 
who buys it kind of hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, and 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 uh, her first impression is wrong, right? Like, she likes right. this guy. She finds him really charming. There's a mutual attraction there. She believes all this stuff. Yeah, and she's like, oh, that makes sense because, like, he seems like a dick. Like, Darcy right. seems like a dick, so of course he would do all of these things you're saying. Right. And so, and that's where, like, the story uh, turns, right, is, is this idea of, like, these first impressions being wrong and, and uh, being willing to, like, dig past that and find the truth of the matter. And... So, but while she's still in this, this, this like bias against Darcy, understandably, um, he proposes to her because apparently that's what you do when you decide you like someone, you just walk up to him and go, Hey, you want to get married? Um, professes his love to her, but then he also is kind of a dick about it because he also talks a lot about like how her station and her status is so bad and her family is like in such dire straits that she should be happy to marry him. And uh, I think that just rankles Elizabeth even more because that probably reminds her of like the other guy, Collins. Like it just, you know, she's like, no, I don't want this. And she says no to him. Um, And, you know, off he goes. And and we're thinking like, you know, what's next here? (laughs) I guess um, our our characters have have bounced off of each other. Um, Are you ready for the third paragraph? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the third and final, uh, Darcy subsequently writes Elizabeth a letter in which he explains that he separated the couple largely because he did not believe Jane returned Bingley's affection. He also discloses that Wickham, after squandering his inheritance, tried to marry Darcy's then 15-year-old sister in an attempt to gain possession of her fortune. With these revelations, Elizabeth begins to see Darcy in a new light. Shortly thereafter, the youngest Bennet sister, Lydia, elopes with Wickham. The news is met with great alarm by Elizabeth, since the scandalous affair, which is unlikely to end in marriage, could ruin the reputation of the other Bennet sisters. When she tells Darcy, he persuades Wickham to marry Lydia, offering him money. Despite Darcy's attempt to keep his intervention a secret, Elizabeth learns of his actions. At the encouragement of Darcy, Bingley subsequently returns, and he and Jane become engaged. Finally, Darcy proposes again to Elizabeth, who this time accepts. Uh, and that's where we're in the summary, but like, there's a lot that goes into all this, right? Um, as always, but yeah. What did you think of the sort of the ending of the novel here as, as things come together? Uh, we've talked about it a bit, but, uh, I, I mean, like it starts to turn into a story where we can see the, the ending coming where it seems like it's going to be sort of the happier ending when she goes to, to like visit his residence, basically, I, I was like a hundred percent sure that things were going to go well from here on. Yeah. And she's like she falling in love with impressive library. Exactly. And yeah. he, it's clearly like almost a metaphor for himself. Like yeah. more than meets the eyes. He's got like intellect. He's got all these things that well, all that the servants intriguing. love him and talk about how great he is exactly. and all this stuff. Yeah. It's like, Oh, he's not the guy I expected him to be. Yeah. So it's like a, um, indirect way of showing all of the intricacies and the in- insides of this character that we've kind of come to like more and more as time has gone on. And so is Elizabeth. And then uh, it is, it is clever to have him. He proposes, then he gets rejected. And so now he's in, right. a, in a case where he thinks like, Oh, she doesn't like me at all. Like I still like her. She doesn't like me at all. And so now he's feeling like hurt, but then she realizes that she's been sold all these lies from the letter. Right. And mm-hmm. so now she's starting to view him differently. And so and then she realizes that she's sort of wounded him in a way and she's starting to see him in new light and going, maybe I was wrong about him. And so you have this like tension of what's come before um, and and how, how do you move past that now? It is interesting how like money solves everything, right? Like uh, the, the situation with Wickham and, and Lydia um darcy just sort of pays him off and i guess that's yeah. okay now <laughs> um it doesn't seem like the kind of guy you'd want to have with your sister but okay i haven't read or seen i i know this and i probably shouldn't even make a reference to it because i don't know enough about it but it reminds me of something that you would hear in like a 50 shades of gray story where it's like <laughs> and then he just paid for everything and took care of everything and it was all it was all happily ever after well he's there. 10 he, he's ten thousand a year or whatever right like they keep talking <laughs> yeah. about how much money he makes yeah, which I kept. I I was trying to gauge it in like eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Clearly, a lot more tough. than it is today. Yeah. So this idea that he just like pays it all off and that's like romantic in a way because he's done it for Elizabeth yeah. to like, sh- you know, sure up the future of the family and she can make it. Well, she power, right? 
Right. And she can make an unbiased decision. It doesn't have to be about her family's financial future anymore. It can be about whether he actually she actually likes him or not and whether she wants to be with him in that way. Yeah. And you know, just it's it's kind of that wish fulfillment stuff like I'm sure, you know, even now everybody wishes that they had enough money to just wave at problems and they go away. Yeah. Um, so this is this scene that I actually really like where this lady Catherine shows up and kind of unannounced too it seems like and she's dropping in and she has this confrontation with elizabeth where she's like you are not going to get with mr darcy he is betrothed to his cousin and they (laughs) have been betrothed since birth and you're not going to step in here and like they're not like they're not like engaged or anything at this point anyway in fact i don't even think he knows that she likes him and and vice versa you know like he she doesn't know if he still likes her but um Elizabeth refuses to back down and she's like, I'm not going to promise that, like get out of here. And like, I thought this was a cool moment of her standing up to somebody who clearly has the like elevated status, more money, more reputable, all that stuff. And this kind of old guard, like, you know, his marriage has been arranged since birth. Like, who are you to step in here? You're not, you have no name. You have no status. Nobody cares about who you are. You're no good for him. And, uh, I like that Elizabeth stands up for herself and, this she ends up like Lady Catherine basically leaves in a huff and goes on to talk to um Darcy, Mr. Darcy, and like to, to like dissuade him from from uh getting with Elizabeth, but it has the opposite effect. And this is the way that he learns that she actually does still like him. Um I I thought that was all clever. I liked that scene a lot. Um I don't know, I thought that was cool. Yeah. And I think that this was the final thing that I needed to see out of Elizabeth for me to buy all of the all of what we saw leading forward because like you said the, and I really like the quote actually where she says something along the lines of she's not going to promise anything against her own happiness yeah. and that her own happiness is a good key to the ending here where it's like she's not you know of co- like we talked about this whole patriarchal system that's clearly going on and like she's choosing something that's for her own happiness and like it does end up being her decision at the end of the day um, whether it fits into the mold of what's like socially normal or not. Uh, so in that way, I think it really is fitting with Elizabeth all the way through. And I think we can, I, I can buy it as a story where it is, seems to me to be female empowerment and, and um, you know, a character with agency choosing her own destiny. Yeah, it is. I can, I can see that reading of it. It, it is fascinating that it's not clear that it's, that, that is necessarily what's going on here, but right. there's definitely yeah, like there, that reading is there. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was really notable that at the end of the book where most romances that I've read and my knowledge of them is they, they tend to like kind of focus on that happily ever after and sort of the, the fairy tale nature of it. Whereas we get more of a description of what goes on with like everybody in the family once they're together and um, they have to seek people's blessing. Like she has to go to her father and there's kind of a you know, fairly touching conversation where she has to convince her father that she actually does love him. And he, and that, you know, clearly is like the only thing Mr. Bennett, you know, wanted to make sure of before he gave the blessing. He's like, you got to be sure because I know you. And if you don't like him, if you don't like this guy. It's not going to work out like you're going to be miserable. And I don't want that for you. And she has to convince him like, no, I actually do like him. He seems like a jerk. I know everybody thinks he's a jerk, but he's actually not. <laughs> um, and she has to like kind of go around talking that way. But then like her mother is just immediately excited and like uh, just she's more worried about like impressing Mr. Darcy uh, than anything else, um, you know, which kind of is in line with the way her character's been all along. But then we hear about like what happens with each of her sisters and how the the you know the family dynamic is now, and then the book sort of ends. And um, I, I just thought it was interesting that the focus wasn't as much on these two characters who we followed all along and their sort of happiness at the end, as much as it is about their happiness as it is situated among all these other characters and the social sort of web we've been we've been weaving here. Yeah. No, yeah, I like that a lot. It's not like the the end of Cinderella where it's just like a kiss and then a fade to black or like a ride off into the sunset kind of thing. Like we have to like figure out how well, it, all the pieces fall into place. It's interesting that you say the end of Cinderella because we talked about how the family gets dealt with in different ways in the different versions of that story, right? Yeah, that's like true, sometimes yeah. they're like punished or or sometimes they're welcomed into the to the castle and and you know, so different things happen. Um, and, and again, like that's kind of interesting to look at here because 
the family is is sort of an essential part to if they're going if she's going to go forward being happy not only is she happy in love but she's happy in the sense that she has done right by her family so she right. kind of gets the best of of all worlds in that sense yeah. all right man um i think we're about done here with the book um i am super interested to watch this movie now um i i'm excited to see how a modern filmmaker is going to take this thing and and pare it down into a two-hour story um thereabouts and um yeah i i'm yeah i'm definitely into it i i, I hope i get to feel like i am in this era and and you know yeah it's gonna be a lot of fun to see it represented on film i've already been like sort of imagining what i think the cinematography can look like and the color like i feel like it's going to be very warm and there's going to be lots of gowns and and elegant uh candlelit moments and <laughs> things like that like i i'm excited i think it could be really cool to, to yeah, see man. this represented maybe we have to get some top hats or something for the next week. yeah um we actually are hoping to have a guest on so pay attention to that so hopefully we can get get another perspective in here um, which i think will be will be good um, yep. This project was a Patreon uh, voted quarterly project. Uh, we we put the we put a poll up for people to weigh in on. It was selected and voted to the top. Um, we do these things every three months or so. So if you wanted to hop on our Patreon, you can become a part of choosing the next one. We have one more this year, and then we'll do four more next year. That's the plan. So um, if that interests you, check it out. We also have bonus content that comes out every month. So check out Patreon. And oh, and shout out to all the patrons who voted for this. Thanks for doing it. And uh, I figure that they must have been having a little fun choosing this because they're like, this is probably not the sort of thing that they would choose on their own. Um, but that's what these are yeah. for, right? Like you can you can have us do things we we wouldn't necessarily choose on our own. Right. And and I appreciate it for that reason. Good chance, like I said, to cover something like this. It's a it's a good excuse to get to cover like a Jane Austen. So also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And if you want to join the Council of Inklings, we post polls and all kinds of other stuff that can help shape the show and decide what, what we cover outside of that Patreon uh, quarterly project. Yeah, and that's on Facebook. Um, if you liked this episode, uh, as we, we sort of struggle to to talk about Jane Austen and, and uh, in ways that I'm sure doesn't quite do it justice but if you're feeling generous and you enjoyed this episode we'd love to see it in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you use to listen if you're on youtube like the video make sure to subscribe follow whatever on whatever platform you're on these all help the metrics so that we can like lay it at the feet of the great al algorithm and hope that we'll share our show yes. to more more people yeah i've heard that smashing that bell helps as well <laughs> Yes, I have heard that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Uh, I, I'm i curious to see if like if I keep, you know, reading this stuff and watching this stuff. Am I going to start speaking like these people? Is, is it going to start seeping into my into my dialogue? We can only hope yeah, that we could hope. be so elegant. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we, we, we do speak clumsily by comparison these days, it seems like to me. Uh, anyway, we will be back next week. We hope you join us for it. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>